there are uh, some cities that you have never heard of, except for the fact that somebody famous or infamous was born there or lived there, right? I'm from Cincinnati. Not many people know that Charles Manson was there for a season. It is what it is. Maybe that's why the Bengals are so bad. Uh, if I were to tell you about Owensboro, Kentucky, you would say, what? Like, I don't even, why would I even want to go there? Uh, believe it or not, I don't know that you would equate Johnny Depp with Owensboro, Kentucky, but that's where Johnny Depp is actually from. A friend of mine got to brag a little bit. She was flying home after a, a conference. Uh, she's, a, she's a psychologist. And she uh, looked over her aisle, like just across, well, just, there's only one aisle on a plane, or two maybe, over her aisle, and she saw Johnny Depp. Cause, and that's when she, uh, he told her, like, yeah, I'm from Kentucky, and he was going home for the holidays to see family. She got to talk to Johnny Depp for like an hour. My wife is completely jealous. She loves me, but not as much as Johnny Depp. I'll just leave that there. Uh, m- most of you, maybe you've not heard of uh, Stratford, Ontario. Uh, I didn't until I found out that this guy, which you may or may not like his music, Justin Bieber, put that place on the map. But my favorite comedic actor, who's in the best show ever, if you disagree, it's okay, you're just wrong, uh, he was in The Office. He's, he's the office manager. Steve Carell himself is from Acton, Mass. There are some cities and towns that you probably had never heard of unless if you knew the famous or infamous person from there. Today we're going to look at a city uh, in the first century, Pergamum, that was a little bit like that, uh, where maybe if you talk to somebody about where you're from, you're from Pergamum, and they say, I never really... I never heard of Pergamum. Where is that? And you would say, oh, we're famous because that's where Satan lives. Satan lives in my city, right? There's a Hallmark card. Yeah, there are just some cities that you don't know about unless of a famous or infamous person is from there. And today we're going to look at the city that Satan is from. Just two weeks out, I think, yeah, two weeks out from Halloween. So Put on your helmets, grab your Bibles, and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Go ahead right now and do that. You can pull out your smartphone and just type in your Bible app, Revelation chapter 2. Yes, we always have the content on the screens, but I want you to develop a relationship with this book. It's the most important book you'll ever read in your life because it's not about a book. It's about a person, Jesus, who died for the sins of the world. Here, The first uh, map we're going to show you is the map of the seven cities. Uh, Our writer, John, is hanging out on Patmos. He's in exile. Week one, we looked at Ephesus. We headed about 40 miles north to Smyrna. Now we're heading about another 45, 40-ish miles north to Pergamum. Uh, Pergamum was the capital of Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey. Uh, It was a very powerful and influential city. It had incredible uh, advances in medicine. uh, That's actually one of the reasons why Jesus wrote what he did uh, in our text uh, this this morning. It uh, it had the second largest library next to Alexander the Great, and it was sort of the mecca for uh, Roman uh, imperial worship. Uh, If you were a Roman military official and you won a war, you won a battle, right, or a campaign, that's great. But there's a title and a name for you, listen closely, that is ascribed to you if you defend, or I'm sorry, if you defeat king after king and kingdom after kingdom. You were called a king of kings and a lord of lords. Another phrase that is not theological in nature, 
Paul and all the writers of the New Testament just steal the political language and say, no, 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 Jesus is king of kings. Jesus is Lord of lords. The emperor and Caesar, they are not God. Only Jesus is God. Now, Pergamum, was a um, city was on a hill, so there was, uh, there was an upper city and a lower city, and this is pretty normative in the first century. I want to take you to the lower city first. Here's a photo of um, the ruins of the healing center of Aesculapius. I hope I said that correctly. I actually did pronounce that because I have a list. This was the healing center. Think of this as the modern-day Mayo Clinic. Now, there were about two to 300 shrines to Aesculapius, the, the goddess of healing and medicine, throughout the Roman Empire. But there were only three of the larger, more intense uh, healing centers. Pergamum had one of them. Now, in these ruins, if you were to go to the lower city, it was sort of like a modern-day spa day. There were, there were sort of hot tubs. Uh, you could get you know, to the equivalent of a, a massage. You could see a chiropractor. They even did dream therapy, which is kind of trippy. Uh, they would put you to sleep, and the, the goddess, the scrupulous, would, would whisper into your ear in your dreams your ailment, what's wrong with you, and then also what to cure you. Now, here's part of the tension of being a Christian, Healthcare was not provided to you as a Jesus follower. Let me say that again. Healthcare was not provided to you as a Jesus follower because in order to get medicine, whatever they had in the first century, you had to go to, keep it up guys, you had to go to the healing center and worship this false goddess. To get Tylenol for my kid? Yeah, you did. To, to, get, a, to get a drug or a medicine or maybe something from an aloe plant, right? Like, yeah, you had to engage in false worship. And if you didn't, you would not get the medication. Think about that. Maybe you right now have a loved one that is sick. Maybe even worse, they're, they're actively dying. They won't be here much longer. And so as a Jesus follower in Pergamum, what do you do? do I, I mean, I, I mean <laughs> this is going to be a heavy sermon. Do, do, you just go to the, do you just go to the Mayo Clinic and just say, I'll fake pretend worship? I don't really mean it because I want my loved one to like live. So as long as I can get the drugs and the health care for my family, I don't really care. I think a lot of us would because I think a lot of us at the end of the day, we're not Jesus followers, we're pragmatists. And Romans, we're not stupid, right? If they caught on <laughs> to your uh, hypocrisy, which is basically to put a mask over yourself, you could die, you could end in jail, or even worse, you would be socially excommunicated, right? You ever been, uh, I won't say who, but some of my friends growing up did really dumb things in Walmart, and they were banned forever in Walmart. You would not be able to go to the healing center to get medicine if they caught you not actually worshiping this false god. Now let's head to the upper city here in Pergamum. This is where Satan lives. There's three structures. The middle structure where a group of people are, that would be considered Satan's throne. Here's an older photo of the ruins of Satan's throne. And then here's a photo of an artist's rendition of Satan's throne. It's a massive structure, a massive building. Up, up there as well would have been the altar of Zeus. Uh, altars of Zeus were all throughout the Roman Empire, but there was also one here uh, in uh, Pergamum. And actually, a phrase that they would refer to Zeus as, check this out, this is, re this is the reason why you need to read your Bibles, they would call Zeus a savior god. Sound familiar? Yes, it does. This is all language, writers of the New Testament, political language that they're stealing 
to ascribe to Jesus because Jesus is both our Savior and our God as well. Also on this hill, you would have the uh, temple. Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry about this. This is actually the, this is like the front porch uh, into Satan's throne. Uh, this is um, actually, you can go to Berlin, Germany, and see this for yourself. The Germans were allowed to uh, take the ruins over uh, fr- from, from Turkey to Germany. And this is just the front center of Satan's throne. The, the, the next photo I want to show you is the temple to the emperor Trajan. Uh, like I said before, at the beginning of the message, and this all is going to make sense in the, the letter we're about to read that Jesus wrote to the church of Pergamum. This city was the epicenter of political worship. So yes, they were worshiping the emperor Trajan, but it was also a temple to worship whatever sent, sitting uh, Roman politician was in place at the time. What was it like to be a Christian in Pergamum? It was really hard. You couldn't get health care. You had to politically be ostracized because we, we have, um, if you go to D.C., we have tons of war memorials, right, to uh, memorialize the brave men and women that fought and died for our country. When Rome would defeat a city and topple a kingdom, they would build memorials and worship the leader that won that victory. That's what you're looking at right now. So to be a Jesus follower in Pergamum, and you were singing the equivalent of the national anthem to the emperor Trajan or whatever sitting emperor is in, and what we, some people would say, would be disrespectful of the American flag, if you uh, did not remove your cap, if you did not put your hand on your heart, or if uh, if you took a knee during the national anthem or the song to the emperor, you were considered an outcast, except the Christians were protesting because the emperor is not God. Caesar is not God. There is no political Roman military official that is a king of kings and a lord of lords that has not defended the kingdom of God. It was the Christians that were taking the knee. It was the Christians not putting the hand over their heart. It was the Christians not taking their ball cap off their head, so to speak, to kind of give my best illustration. And if you didn't do that, you would, you would die. You would be murdered. What's it like to be a Christian in Pergamum? It's really difficult because Medicare, med, uh, uh, health insurance was denied to you if you didn't worship the false gods. You would be politically ostracized if you didn't worship the sitting emperor. It was really difficult to be a Jesus follower in Pergamum. One last uh, location I want to take you to. This is the temple of Dionysus. You guys can go ahead and throw up that that photo or maybe that. Yeah, okay. Uh, The temple of Dionysus. She was the wine god or goddess. And so by default, Pergamum had really good wine. Uh, what you're also seeing is, so that's, that's her temple there. And then if we can go to the next photo, what you're going to see is the amphitheater, really close to the temple uh, of Dionysus. Now, here's why you need to care about that. Every spring in Pergamum, there is a spring festival to the goddess of Dionysus. It would have made Woodstock blush. Hear me when I say, because I'm not allowed to, because there's children here, and I get that. 
whatever you wanted to get into, you could get into, right? Some, some people erroneously think, well, college is a place for kids to just experience and explore yourself. Oh, honey, you could experience whatever you wanted at the Spring Festival of Dionysus. People would get so drunk that they would stumble onto the amphitheater theater and began acting. And believe it or not, historically, this is where Greek theater was actually born, at a pagan goddess wine festival. And you're a Jesus follower in Pergamum. And maybe it's 2020, and it's been really hard. And you're like, ah, forget this. I'm going to go get hammered. Everyone else in Pergamum is doing it. Why can't I? What's it like to be a Jesus follower in Pergamum? It's really difficult. It's really difficult. What's it like to be a Jesus follower in America? Not a nominal Christian where you show up because it's church on Sunday. You're actually trying to live out your faith. It is really, really difficult. To which Jesus writes this letter in Revelation 2, 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, Jesus says, where Satan has his throne. He's referring to the upper city of Pergamum. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even the days of Antipas, my faithful servant, uh, witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan actually lives. Jesus writes this letter and just says, hey, I know where you live. It's really difficult. I know where you live. As a pastor, Jesus is developing empathy. He's like, I know, I know where you live. It's really hard, and, and you stay true to my name. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a small word, small name, but it has big implication. Uh, Jesus mentions this guy, Antipas, was murdered for his faith in this church that he attended, this congregation in the city of Pergamum. Why was he murdered? Because he converted to Christianity and he refused to worship the Roman gods and goddesses. And the exact same place where these false um, sort of uh, uh, temple workers for these gods and goddesses, where they would offer sacrifices to these false gods, they put him in that place and they cooked Antipas to death for his faith. And what you heard were the screaming prayers of a faithful Jesus follower. Don't glance over that. Have you ever had someone in the history of Rockingham Christian Church die? Have you ever had someone at RCC that, 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 that was a, a phenomenal member, a phenomenal contributor, and maybe slowly or suddenly they passed away? Even worse, maybe they were murdered? You need to go there with me. What does that do to a congregation? It is a mile marker in that church's life and existence. It's really hard to grieve a beloved person that goes to our church when they die. That's what happened to Antipas. And Jesus says, I know where you live. It's hard. And yet, you remain true to my name. How, how many of us, I mean, I, I'll raise my hand. I've, I've done this. How many of us have said, yeah, but Jesus, you don't, you don't know where I live. I'm in, I'm in the hospitality food industry, 
And let me tell you, Jesus, there's a massive sex and drug culture there that some days are so difficult that I don't even care anymore. I just want to do my shift and go party with my coworkers on the weekends. And Jesus says, I know, I know where you live. And yet you're still remaining true to my name. Yeah, but, but Jesus, you don't, you don't know how hard this pandemic is. I mean, my, my wife and I are, are about to kill each other. And we're, we're this close to a divorce, and we don't really know what to do ex- except for go to church and be faithful to things we need to go to. But it just seems like things are not resolving. And Jesus tells you, I know where you live. I know where you live. It's hard. Notice two things what Jesus is not doing that a lot of Christians do. He's not downplaying the situation. And he's not giving you a Hallmark Christianese easy verse to make you feel good. He's calling it what it is. It's really hard, Jesus says. He says, I know where you live, and yet you remain faithful to me. Jesus says, I'm the God with a double-edged sword. What does this mean? This is the Roman uh, visualization for justice. Well, I thought Jesus was just my homeboy. Isn't Jesus like love and kind of like Mr. Rogers? Yeah, sure. But he's also the wrath of God. He's also the guy that died for your sins, naked in front of his mother. And Jesus is writing to this church, like, don't fear the emperor. (laughs) Don't fear the one God. Don't fear a government that will not give you health care. You need to fear me. I'm the one carrying the double-edged sword. And when he's talking about a double-edged sword, what you need to be thinking about is not an infantry sword, this little... Uh, swords or knives that the Roman soldiers would have, you need to think of a sword used in cavalry, cavalry sword. This long sword that would gut people on the run as the soldiers would be on their horses or whatever animals that they were using. Jesus says, I know where you live, but don't be foolish. I am the wrath of God incarnate. I will come for you. I will come for your city. Do not fear whatever it is you're fearing right now. And RCC, I need you to go there. Maybe you're not fearing the government. Maybe you are. I don't know. But maybe there's something you're fearing. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one. I'm the one that gives out ultimate justice. Not your boss, not a president, not a coworker or a neighbor, or that relationship that you are having a really hard time with. Jesus, I'm the one that carries the sword of justice. You need to fear me, which is why I think Jesus gives this church this charge. Let's keep reading in verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, this is the charge that Jesus gives RCC in Pergamum. This is the B charge, be repentant. Jesus says, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I will bring justice. Jesus is telling this church, an Old Testament story, and he says, don't get it twisted. 
When he talks about Balaam and Balak, he's referring to Numbers chapter 20 through like 22. It's pretty lengthy. I know that you all have numbers memorized in the Hebrew. Uh, But Balaam and Balak worked out a plan to cast a curse on the Israelites as they're traveling from Egypt to Canaan, right? Uh, from slavery to death. It's a, it's a historical thing, but it's also a metaphor. Like in, in Hebrews, how we go from slavery to sin to freedom in Christ. Anyways, they, uh, they, put a, they try to put a, uh, a curse on the Israelites three times. And you know what happens? Blessing comes out. Blessing comes out. And so then they have another idea. They have another idea. Let's go the sex route. Let's get Israelite females to come over to our camp, eat our food, ingrain them in our culture, worship our gods and our goddesses, and then invite the men over. This still happens today, if you don't know this. And then they'll worship our gods and our goddesses. What is Jesus trying to say? Here's the big idea of what Jesus is trying to say. If you can't get God to turn his back on his people, get his people to turn their back on their God. That's what's happening in Pergamum. That's what's happening in Pergamum. That's what's happening in America. Don't get it twisted, friends. There's always a demonic presence right at the forefront of any sort of sexual revolution. All the way clear in first century history. If you want to get God... If you want to separate God and man, get God's people to turn their back on their God. And if God's people turn their back on their God, it's uh, maybe a couple hours, minutes even, until God's people turn their back on one another. How many of you excommunicated someone here at RCC in the last six months for whatever reason? How many of you would say before the pandemic that you had a thriving relationship with other people that went to Rockingham Christian Church and now you don't, now you don't even care to speak to them. Maybe you snooze them, block them, or unfriended them on your social media platforms. This is what's happening to us. This is what's happening to the church in Pergamum. This is what happens in places where Satan lives and has dominance and ultimate authority and rules and reigns. Oh, do not get it twisted, friends. Satan is real. Hell is real. Demonic oppression is real. I could tell you stories of exorcisms, but what is that going to do? It's going to give you a good story, but probably won't lead you to anything else. And Jesus is telling this church, be repentant. What does repentance mean? Depends. Are you reading the New Testament or the Old Testament? New Testament means to change your mind. It's a cognitive choice to change your mind and do an about 180. It's also sort of a military term. If you're reading the Old Testament, which I think is more beautiful, the word teshuva means to come home. It's a both and. It's knowing that you need to change your mind and do something, but it's also knowing that you can come home and God is a safe relationship. That grace keeps the light on. Repentance isn't, sorry, God, I'm a bad person. I'll stop doing that thing. <laughs> no, repentance is coming home. For Jesus, it's not about the sexual escapades at the uh, Spring Festival at Dionysus. Uh, it's not about this horrendous political worship that we even have Americans where we worship our politics more than Jesus. It's not what's on the surface. It's what's below the surface. And what's below the surface of every human being 
is identity. What is going to define me as a human being? And if you are a Jesus follower, your identity is that you are the beloved son and daughter of God. It has nothing to do with your religious performance. Religious people are overt and covert with their sin at the same time. They're overt in that they love to call people out. But they're covert in that they don't really deal with the stuff behind closed doors. And Jesus says, you need to repent. You need to practice repentance. Look, I'm telling you this every week. This is as if we hired, it's so weird to say, but this is as if we hired Jesus as a church consultant to see how healthy Rockingham Christian Church is. And Jesus is saying, if you want to keep your influence, you need to practice repentance. Stop thinking that life is a story about you. Stop thinking that you always have to be right. There's a reason why um, during the pandemic that a lot of uh, porn websites uh, are giving out free memberships. There's a reason why alcohol alcohol sales is through the roof during a pandemic. Do you know why that reason is? People are lonely. People are depressed. And I'm talking about Christians too. (laughs) Don't get it twisted. People are looking for meaning. People are looking for something to get them through this horrible pandemic that we're in. I'm telling you, where Satan sits, a sexual revolution is not far behind. If you've engaged in those things, if you've behaved in a way that you'd say, Ben, man, honestly, like, if the pandemic weren't here, like, I probably wouldn't engage in that. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to tell you to go home. Stop it. Repent. Turn your backs on sin. Go back to Jesus. You do not want to see Jesus (laughs) with the sword of justice coming for you. All right? He's not playing at that point. And we don't want to think about hell. We don't want to think about damnation. We don't want to think about death. We don't want to think about eternity, which is why Jesus is saying, Rockingham Christian Church, God will never turn his back on you, but you will turn his back on him, and you will turn your back on one another. So repent, be humble, practice repentance with one another. Second Peter chapter 2, Peter even hints back at the Balaam and Balak story, what's going on in Revelation when he's addressing false teachers. Which basically, the, Nic- the Nicolaitans, so if, if Ephesus was all about theology and not love, Pergamum leaned towards the love-grace side and didn't really know the Bible very well, which is another thing is why sin sometimes ran- runs rampant in the church. Usually it's because there's poor theology. Not always, it's just one of the symptoms. We could be, be here all day talking about the reasons why. In Second Peter, Peter writes, with eyes full of idolatry, They never stopped sinning. Do you, know what, um, do you know what the word lust means? This is for free. It's not in my notes. Lusting is actually a good thing, believe it or not. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says the angels lust after God's scripture. To lust at something means you have tunnel vision. Like you can only focus on that one thing, right? 
It's half the time I get in trouble. My wife's trying to, Ben, Ben, what, what, what? Like you're trying to watch some sports or what, whatever. It's good to lust. It's good to have your eyes gazed on something that is beautiful and meaningful, which is Jesus. Yet what does the devil do because he's so uncreative? God creates sex and sexuality. What does Satan do? He can only pervert it. He can only throw paint on an already finished piece of work. And so what the people are doing here in 2 Peter is that they're looking at sin. They never stop sinning. And they seduce the unstable. Are you unstable in your relationship with Jesus? Are you easily swayed? Do you care enough about holiness? Kingdom of God ethics. Or is God just sort of moralistic, therapeutic deism, which is to say that God is a Dr. Phil who loves everybody and he'll rub you back and give you a sucker on the way out? Do you care about your sin even more so? Do you even, sometimes we don't even know, we know that we're like cussing somebody out or saying a bad thing or gossiping, but we don't know the weight of our words. We don't know what it it does to the person that we're blaspheming against. Peter says they seduce people, they are experts in greed and accuse brood. That's an interesting, cool phrase. They've left the straight way. They've left Jesus. It's a slow fade, church. I've been a pastor for like 15 years. Giving stops. They, they, they contact a pastor over a serving area. Yeah, I just we're too busy right now. We can't serve in the church. Then their attendance drops. This is what Peter's describing of churches. This happens all the time. It's not theoretical. And I'm telling you this because I care about you. And so does Jesus. Verse 15, they've left the straight way and they've wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, the son of Bezir, who loved the wages of wickedness. A people that sin, they don't want to sin, and they love doing it all the time. Every week we're going to show you a story of one of our folks that is trying to or has stepped into a B value for a really long time. So I want you to take a moment to listen to Ginny LaCasse's story. Repentance. In my life, repentance has been freeing. Um, As a young adult, uh, teenager, um, child, I wrestled with a lot of emotions that were overwhelming. Um, Anxiety, depression, fear, jealousy, anger, um, and self-seeking behaviors. And um, it wasn't until I'd say uh, a few years into my uh, walking with Christ journey that I suddenly realized I had this um, incredible feeling of freedom Um, and in my belly when I would breathe I didn't feel like my chest was being crushed and that was honestly the first time I could say that I felt that way. And I remember it so vividly that I, um, I took a voice recording and I just said I, on the voice recording how great it felt and that I finally felt free. And I believe that that was the moment that God um, truly taught me what repentance meant. Um, that when I come to him and I truly am um, sorry for my sins and I want to turn back to him, that he will 
accept me back um, every time. And the beauty of it is that I'm gonna make mistakes every day. Um, that's guaranteed, but repentance allows me to turn back to him um, over and over again. And it's, it's very freeing. Um, and it allows me to be fully present uh, with those around me um, because I'm not overwhelmed by those horrible feelings. I love that um, Jenny took the time to record uh, an audio of how she felt. Uh, it's how Jesus ends this letter when he says, uh, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, to the one who is an overcomer. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give the person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Jesus says if we are a church that practices repentance, we get three things. Manna, great. What? I want Chick-fil-A. What's manna? It's sustenance in our journey. We get a white rock. What? Why? Because we get a new name. And under that white rock is a name that's only for you. I don't know what your name is. You don't know what your name is. Nobody in this room, nobody watching online knows what your name is because it's a term of intimacy. My wife and I have special names. No, I'm not telling you what they are because I want to stay married. But they're terms of endearment, terms of intimacy. And I just find this so beautiful that, Je that Jesus ends this letter by saying to the church in Salem, New Hampshire, right, I know where you live, yet you stay true to my name. Be repentant. I have a new name waiting for you in heaven. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that um, you are in the midst of living in a really difficult uh, timepiece in history. Uh, no doubt we are, we are the harlot and the whore that Hosea talks about. And yet we are the bride of Christ that Paul talks about. And yet we constantly leave you. We walk away from your house and we go after lovers less wild than you, Jesus, to give us some sort of identity and meaning. Jesus, I pray that our church, myself included, would just take a long, hard look at ourselves. Are we a church of repentance? Are we a church that takes personal holiness, kingdom of God ethics so seriously that it would break our hearts that if Jesus wrote this letter to us, he would say, you've turned your back on God. But thankfully, God, you've not turned your back on us. And we are not the sum total or the definition of our worst day or most difficult season in our life. Thank you so much for that grace. May we step into a church that practices repentance so that we can be faithful long enough to know, to hear, from you what our new name will be. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.